Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Naked Astronomy. Each month I strip down interesting developments in the world of space. In a quest to find out what's really going on out there. I'm Greer Jackson, and this time, NASA's Juno probe has reached Jupiter after a five-year battle through the solar system. But now it's completed this death-defying stunt. What now? In Naked Astronomy, we're going to be colluding with the king of the planets. don't know about you, but before a couple of years ago, I really had not given much thought to Jupiter. Well, other than a rhyme I made up to help me remember the planets, my very excitable monkey junior Smelt Uncle Nathan. It used to be Smelt Uncle Nathan's pants, but since Pluto is no longer a planet, doesn't really work, does it? I'd love to hear yours and hear, actually, whether they still work. You can tweet me at Greer Jackson or you can just hashtag Naked Astronomy. Anyway, I digress. It wasn't until helping out one of our interns, Heather, who was working on another one of our podcasts. It's called Question of the Week. And I began to realise just how weird Jupiter really is. Here's a clip of Heather and Dr Mark Raymond from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. And they're answering a question that listener Alana sent in. If I landed on a gassy planet, would I sink to the car? I asked Dr Mark Raymond who works at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Although some planets seem to be gassy, they aren't like the light, airy, insubstantial gas we generally think of. On Earth, the weight of the air above you, pulled down by our planet's gravity, creates a modest pressure. This is about one kilogram per square centimeter. That's the mass of a big book, like a dictionary, if you remember those from the 20th century, pushing down on an area about the size of a single Lego brick. We conveniently call it one bar. That's Earth, but what about Jupiter? In contrast to our planet, gas planets are composed mostly of gas. They're also gigantic, and the weight of all that gas is tremendous. For example, Jupiter is mostly hydrogen, and it is enormous, 11 times the diameter of Earth and over 300 times the mass. It may have a rocky cord that's more than 10 times the mass of Earth. All that mass causes intense gravity, pulling downward on the gas, which compresses it and creates fantastically high pressure. More pressure than one dictionary. How many, though? A hundred? A thousand? Ten thousand? If you ever tried to land on a gassy planet, you would be subjected to pressure beyond anything you can imagine. As you descended below the colorful gas clouds, the pressure would grow and grow, rising to one million bars at a depth of about 10,000 kilometers. 
one million dictionaries. You would be immersed in a sea of hydrogen so dense that it's more like liquid than gas. At 20,000 kilometers, the pressure is around two million bars. That's 2,000 times greater than the highest pressure found on Earth in the Mariana Trench in the deepest part of the Pacific Ocean. Two million dictionaries. The hydrogen is compressed so hard that the electrons are squeezed off. This strange condition makes the hydrogen metallic. But going still deeper, the pressure would continue to skyrocket, exceeding perhaps 40 million bars at the rocky core, more than 60,000 kilometers deep. 40 million dictionaries. If you ever tried to land on a gassy planet, you would not even make it to a few hundred kilometers. Your spacecraft and you would be utterly destroyed, squashed by the crushing atmospheric pressure long before you found the core. So you might sink to the core, but only in the form of squished atoms. Squished atoms! I'm still amazed by this. Alas, Juno isn't trying to sink to the core, but rather orbit around it. Although it will eventually crash itself into the atmosphere and burn to a crisp although not for a while. Anyway, it's not this obscenely high levels of pressure that scientists like Jack Kanerny are interested in. I'm the deputy uh, principal investigator for the Juno mission. But what I was interested in was, well, why did they call it Juno? There was no fight over the name. And I'm not exactly sure where Juno originated, but it's, uh, it was a very clever name for the proposal. It refers to the goddess and or wife of uh, Juno. Juno was, of course, uh, guilty of straying a little bit in his marriage and apparently raised uh, clouds to obscure his activities from from his uh, then wife, the goddess Juno. And she caught on to this uh, very quickly and were using her special powers. She uh, was able to see through the clouds and discover what uh, Juno was up to. Uh, Lord knows he probably paid a dear price. So the the name Juno uh, basically refers to that mythology and uh, and the ability to peer through the clouds and see what's going on uh, inside Jupiter. Tell me the story of the Juno mission. Um, how and why was it dreamt up in the first place? Uh, the Juno proposal was first put forward in the early part of this uh, this century, uh, really goes back in time to uh, to George Sisko's uh, original study back in the mid-1980s. So even though we've been working on Juno for, I guess, almost uh, 15 years now, it really, uh, it really grew from a seed that was planted in the mid-1980s. You must be pleased and proud that it's finally come into fruition. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> Back to the mission at hand, given that it's been a bit of a slog to get off the ground, what is it about Jupiter that Jack and co are excited about finding out? Jupiter is essentially the repository of what was left over after the formation of our sun, and it holds within it the secrets of solar system formation. And of course, all the recent discoveries of planets around uh, other stars has kind of given a a rebirth to the whole idea that we need to understand how our solar system formed 
And the best way to do that is to go to Jupiter and understand its composition and its evolution. And so that's uh, part of the wind in Juno's sails. I wonder if you can just sort of paint me a picture of the journey from Earth, if you like, and and what sort of death-defying things it's had to do in order to make the mission possible, I suppose. Well, let's see. We launched the spacecraft actually in August of 2011 from Cape Kennedy down in Florida. And I remember that well. It was a very, very hot month down there. Then the spacecraft went out and ventured just beyond the asteroid belt and did a a deep space maneuver that would uh, target it for a rendezvous again with Earth. And that flyby gave us a little bit of uh, momentum to get us out to Jupiter in a very fuel-efficient way. It's kind of interesting, the, the amount of spacecraft that we eventually will get into our 14-day orbit will weigh about 3,500 pounds. Before we did the, uh, the burn to get into orbit, we weighed a little over 8,000 pounds. And then looking back in August 2011, the amount of mass that we had to lift off the Earth to do that was about one and a quarter million pounds. So the majority of the spacecraft that we sent out there was actually fuel. Wow. And what is it precisely that you're mapping? What is this data that you're expecting back? Well, there's a lot of instruments on the spacecraft. There's nine different science investigations, and each investigation usually has a a couple of different instruments. And so we record the magnetic field uh, as we pass by the planet. Uh, That's uh, the investigation that, that I lead, and when we have built up a map of uh, all these magnetic field observations, we'll create a very detailed model of the magnetic field and see if we can't extrapolate that down into Jupiter to find out where it is generated and how a dynamo works. We also carry another investigation called a microwave radiometer. That looks at the radiation coming out of Jupiter And by looking at that radiation as a function of the wavelength of the radiation and from where it originates, you can infer what the uh, abundance of water and ammonia is in the atmosphere. And that's a very important element in trying to understand how Jupiter formed. And we also do a gravity experiment. And, of course, we do that by tracking the radio signal from the spacecraft and that tells us uh, how the spacecraft orbit is perturbed by gravity. So all this goes into building a comprehensive model of Jupiter's interior and an evolutionary model of Jupiter from the time of its birth four and a half billion years ago. It sounds like a lot of information to take in and send back and also analyze and and interpret. So when can we start expecting to hear about what you guys have found? Well, uh, so far I've only told you about uh, half of it. Uh, (laughs) Those three investigations are the ones that focus uh, primarily on the interior But we also have a very impressive complement of charged particle instruments. There's a waves experiment. We have an education public outreach camera. We have both an infrared and an ultraviolet imaging spectrograph. The short answer would be uh, 
I'm sure that that uh, that we'll see a lot of really interesting discoveries and results uh, coming out almost immediately after a few of these orbits uh, the end of the year, uh, while other science results will come out later when the mission uh, has uh, accumulated this dense net of observations, and that'll take about a year and a half, I think. And um, finally, I mean, I wonder if you can just tell me about the end of the mission. What's going to happen and, and when is that? Yeah, well, the end of the mission is the interesting part. The nominal mission calls for 37 orbits. We, uh, we are flying in a very hostile radiation environment. And uh, radiation is not only bad for people, but it's bad for sensitive electronics. So in order to protect the vital organs of the spacecraft, by which I mean the, the avionics and the instrument uh, electronics, we put all of that stuff into a, a vault. It's a cube, about a meter on a side, and it's a half inch of solid titanium. And that'll reduce the radiation environment by a factor of almost a 1,000. Uh, but even still, after 37 orbits, we will have accumulated quite a heavy dose of ionizing uh, radiation. Now, we have a, a safety factor, a margin, that assures us that we should be able to operate the spacecraft and the instruments successfully for these 37 orbits. But NASA has uh, a requirement, and the requirement is that we do not uh, contaminate the satellite Europa. Uh, the nominal mission plan has us uh, performing this deorbit maneuver while we can still control the spacecraft. So there's a, another possibility that is under study now that would allow us to extend the mission lifetime by a few orbits at a time. And basically the way that works is that, well, uh, as long as we control the spacecraft, we can put it into an orbit that, uh, that we can demonstrate will decay into Jupiter over a series of n orbits. You can pick any number n, 10, 20, whatever. And as long as you can command the spacecraft, you can keep kicking the can down the road. So conceivably, we could get uh, quite a few more orbits and more science return out of the mission that way. Long live Juno. This is Naked Astronomy with Greer Jackson. And today, the mysterious gas giant Jupiter, who, from the sounds of it, won't stay a mystery for much longer. Although that may not be the case for the likes of Roger Hutchinson. Um, I'm an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer based in southwest London. How did you get into all of this? It seems like quite a niche thing to, to get into, you know? Well, when I was a kid, I, was, I grew up in the 70s and that was right at the tail end of the Apollo program. And so the moon landings and everything, as a, as a sort of young boy, that really inspired me. So an interest in space developed... And then as I got a little bit older, I um, probably with the encouragement of my dad, I sort of built a telescope. And uh, I can still remember the first time I saw Saturn through that telescope, and that kind of hooked me. Um, I did a lot of astronomy as a kid growing up, and then went to a university, kind of dropped it for a bit, because got on with life. And then um, probably about five or six years ago, I got back into the hobby, I've kind of been obsessively photographing the skies ever since, really. You mentioned Saturn. You said you'll always remember the first mm. time you saw Saturn. I wonder whether you could describe that moment a bit more for me. 
Well, when you see it with your own eyes for the first time, it kind of blows you away. But people think it's sort of something that's been stuck on to the end of the end of the telescope. They just think it's like a little cardboard cut or something, you know, because it just it just doesn't look real, you know. So it's, it's mind blowing, really. Okay, I will add that to my checklist of things to do in life. <laughs> Catch a fish and eat it. See Saturn in the real flesh, I think, yeah, is the absolutely. next one to do. <laughs> so tell me about Jupiter then. Have you photographed Jupiter much? And I want to know, is it disappointing to see? Uh, no, I'd say Jupiter is not disappointing. I have done a lot of photography of, of Jupiter. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, um, for planetary photography, it's probably the easiest target because it's not called the king of the planets for nothing it's it's big and it's an interesting sort of target as well because it because it um rotates so quickly the cloud patterns change it's it's quite a dynamic target so it's a good one to cut your teeth on (laughs) (laughs) so i came all the way to your beautiful house in the hope that we might be able to photograph jupiter and um classically it's cloudy in in the uk i mean yeah. what more would you expect as with all these things you know in astronomy in britain you've just got to develop a lot of patience and just realize that there'll be another opportunity some other time maybe you know and just make the most of of, of what nature deals you but this summer has been particularly bad you say it's a write-off but i'm looking into your back garden as we sit in the conservatory now and i think the whole trip down from Cambridge has been worth it just to see I mean I don't even know how to describe it it is like a it's like a mini observatory in some ways it's quite impressive well it's kind of I guess it's what people would picture if if they were sort of talking about an observatory and it's got a dome so like anything with serious. A... I mean I think you're underselling <laughs> it here it's it's you know it's a good two meters high white um almost like a Heidi house at the back of yeah, your garden well, it's been described as a um a minion, a rubbish bin, um, a portable to- a toilet, <laughs> all sorts of things. You know, there's been a lot of um, comments about it. Can you give me a tour? Absolutely. Ooh. So it's all plugged in in the hope that we would see something. But <laughs> so. Yeah, if you just watch it and just watch here, because okay, I, I, I have bashed my head on. Yes, I can imagine. Wow, it's a really times. impressive setup. It's currently pointing at Jupiter at the minute, though you wouldn't know it. Does that mean you're sitting out here for hours and end, or do you just hit click and then go to bed? Well, um, for planetary, um, you're actually shooting video, so you don't take individual images. You take a sequence of individual images. So what you want, well, basically what we call it is lucky imaging because um, the sky and the atmosphere is very turbulent. And the more you magnify it, the more turbulent it becomes. So it's basically what we call seeing. So seeing is basically um, with front distortions in the atmosphere. So it's just like, the, you know, that if you're looking at something under high magnification, it wobbles. What you want to do to counteract that is shoot something when it's really high in the sky, so you're looking through less atmosphere, or you can um, use different wavelengths of light um, that are less affected by seeing, or you can wait till you get a really good night, because that is the best thing, is to let nature sort it out for you. 
So there's lots of websites that have um, jet stream uh, predictions. So what you want is the jet stream to be um, the wind speed of the jet stream to be low over the UK, over where you're imaging. And then in general, it doesn't always hold true, but in general, if you've got light winds at ground level, light winds in the jet stream, then seeing is normally reasonably good. Um, so the best images are taken when you know everything works well for you. But uh, we can help that along by um, using non-visible wavelengths of light to image in. So um, one of the images I'm going to show you is taken with uh, an infrared pass filter. And what that does is, um, if you think about the electromagnetic spectrum and you've got like red through to... Like the rainbow. The rainbow, basically. Mm -hmm. So red is a longer wavelength than green, which is a longer wavelength than blue. So what we do is, uh, what I do, is image through a mono camera. So this is a black and white camera, and you image through a series of different filters. So um, what we use is an infrared pass filter, which filters out any wavelength shorter than 685 nanometers, so it's sort of quite long wavelengths, um, and that is less affected by seeing. Um, the shorter wavelengths are more affected by seeing. So what you typically see is when you take uh, your images, so you take a sequence of images, one through an infrared filter, which is not necessary if you want a colour image. You can just use a red and then a green and then a blue filter. But what you generally see is that the red filter image is less affected than the blue filter image by atmospheric seeing because red light has a longer wavelength than blue light. So it kind of demonstrates the theory quite well. And you must have to brush up on your physics quite <laughs> yeah. a lot here to work well, out you how best to photograph these things. You don't necessarily need to know the physics. It's just <laughs> you're just shooting through sort of different filters. But it's quite nice to know why your red image is much better than your blue image. But what we then tend to do is we'll combine the red, green, and the blue images together to give you a color image, and then we'll use the infrared image as what's termed a luminance layer, which is where all your detail is. So that kind of sits on top, gives you all the detail, and all the colour comes from the red, green, and blue images that you've taken um, through the relevant filters. Um, well, that was what? the dome moving. <laughs> is that the dome it moves automatically? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's tracking the sky as well as the telescope. Uh -huh. So what that does mean, to your earlier question, you can, if you're taking long exposure photographs of deep sky objects, you can set it going and go off and have a cup of tea in the warm. And the roof will continue roof to move will, around will like it's just for you. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it does give you a little bit of a shock sometimes if you're not expecting it or if you're leaning against it. <laughs> yeah, <that was laughs> rookie error. Rookie error. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'd forgotten it was on actually. I'll turn it off because we're not actually looking at anything at the minute. Back inside, Roger took me through the complicated imaging processes he does to make these beautiful pictures. He really does make it look easy, but actually there's at least a good 45 minutes of tinkering around. You know, you take a, you take a lot of images over time and some are better than others. And a lot of it, you know, as I've said, is down to conditions that are basically beyond your control. Sometimes you just get a perfect night where everything just works well, works in your favour, all the equipment works well. 
and you get a really nice image at the end of it. So, you know, it's 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 about sort of being patient and plugging away and not being too disheartened. You know, it's just that nice surprise when you get a really good result. What image are you most proud of? Um, the, the ones I'm proudest of are probably some of the deep sky images that, you know, because they do take a lot of time and dedication. But the ones I like the most and enjoyed taking the most are probably the transitory ones. The lunar eclipse that we had last September, you know, it's, uh, it's just great to be able to sort of, uh, for the for the weather to play ball for you to be able to see it because these things happen you know quite you know rarely and so to be able to actually get them and image them is uh, you know uh, is exciting and sort of you know really pleasurable i can see i can see that you take <laughs> joy i mean watching you process and, and talk about it i can see it gives you great pleasure mm, absolutely recommend it to anyone <laughs> you don't need to go mad and have your own observatory in the back in the backyard to do it either you can you can uh, create really nice results with minimal gear now although i may not be getting a fully fledged observatory in my back garden anytime soon i will be staring down a telescope at jupiter and also catching a fish and eating it if you want to see Roger's beautiful images which i highly recommend you can head to his website thelondonastronomer.com Many thanks to all my wonderful guests this week. That's Roger Hutchinson and Jack Kanerny, and also to Anthony Bagger, who composed the theme tune. The programme was produced and presented by myself, Greg Jackson. I'll be back next month, as always. A bientôt!